This is the Centerpoint Church Podcast, and I'm so thankful we get to spend some time together. My name's Jason, and we are approaching this Halloween season, so I thought it would probably be appropriate for us to start this collection called Scary Stories. There's a lot of weird, creepy, and sometimes freaky things in the Bible, and I want us to look at them each week. So let's jump right into the message. So this is wrapping up this collection of talks called Scary Stories, and I have this, I have it up on the board. If you're a note taker, I want you to write this down. This is an important phrase right off the bat. The doctrine of hell is crucial because without it, we can't understand fully our complete dependence upon God. If we don't really understand and study hell, we will not understand our dependence on God. Hell is mentioned in the New Testament alone over 162 times. And out of those 162 times, over 70 of them were talked about by Jesus Christ. So I think it's important that we understand this topic. Now, don't worry. This is not going to be a sinners in the hands of an angry God type of a message. Because if you've given your life to the Lord, by his stripes you are healed. But I think it's important for us to understand what this is because we need to recalibrate what's important to God to make it what's important to us. Very early on in his political career, Abraham Lincoln was running for the House of Representatives in the state of Illinois, and his opponent was a guy by the name of Reverend Peter Cartwright, who was a Methodist preacher. He was actually an evangelist, and he was really roasting Abraham Lincoln while he was on the road with this political campaign disguised as revivals, and he was really harsh with his words on Abraham Lincoln because he said that Abraham Lincoln didn't have a home church, that he really was just kind of a butterfly that would float around from church to church or like a spiritual mutt. He wasn't really a man of God. So Abraham Lincoln did a very Abraham Lincoln thing. He showed up at one of these revivals and sat in the front row. And here you have Reverend Cartwright who's telling people, you know, this story about heaven and about hell, and and he looks down and he sees Abraham Lincoln right there in the front, and he's like, this is the moment where I'm going to get him. It's going to be a gotcha moment. And he says, all who want to go to heaven, please stand up right now. And the whole place stands up, except for Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln remains seated with that stoic look on his face, probably took his top hat off because let's be honest, we're in church, right, Josh? We don't wear hats in church. (laughs) But don't look at Josh. Abraham Lincoln remains seated. And so Reverend Cartwright, Courtright is like, hey, this is, this is Cartwright, you're Courtright. Cartwright says, this is my time. And he says, Mr. Lincoln, may I inquire why you're still seated? Do you not wish to go to heaven with the rest of the saints in your company? And Abraham Lincoln, without missing a beat, looks right at him, and he says, my destiny is not heaven. I'm going to Congress. My destiny is hell. (laughs) At least for the next four years. And judging upon Congress right now, he may have been telling us what the future of it is going to be. But the reality is, is this. We've heard a lot about hell. Is hell Congress? Is hell going to Tuscaloosa and having to sit through an Alabama game? What is hell? And, and we've kind of diluted it by 
just talking about it all the time. And, and, and you've probably heard sermons on hell. You've probably heard people talk about it. You've heard stories. You've heard jokes. You've probably even heard preachers tell you about hell. But I'm here to let you know that I'm not interested in what man says about hell. I'm interested in what does the Bible say about hell. So what we're going to do over the next who knows how many minutes that we spend together is really unpack what does the Bible say about hell, what did Jesus say about hell, what is some false doctrine that we need to be aware of, and then we'll wrap it up with what can we learn from studying what hell is. So that's kind of the journey we're going to take today. Put on a hard hat, pack a lunch, it's time to go to work. So why is hell there? That's a legitimate question. Let's start off with that. Why does hell exist. Well, Jesus told us. This is in the tax collector's gospel, Matthew 25, 41. This is Jesus talking about God. He says, then he will say to those on the left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire. Here's why we have it. Prepared for the devil and his angels. So it was initially created for Beelzebub and one third of the angels that left with him as their punishment. That's why it was there. Listen to what Peter says, 2 Peter 2, 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. So are they all there now? Most aren't. Most are here on earth right now. The Bible actually says that Satan is the God, lowercase g, of the earth, the prince of the air. But it's waiting for judgment. That's why hell was created. So what did Jesus say about hell? How did Jesus describe hell? Jesus actually 12 different times, some translations have more than 12 times, references hell as Gehenna. Sometimes it's pronounced Gehenna. Gehenna or Gehenna. He referenced it as that. Now that's a weird word on the surface. You're like, what does that mean? It's a good question. Remember, when Jesus taught, I really honestly feel like my, my low-dollar, cheap, cheesy sermon props is exactly how God, how Jesus, God manifested, would have preached. Because Jesus just used random, everyday things that were around them. And that's why on the surface, when you read Scripture, you don't really get the depth of it unless you kind of peel it back a little bit and start looking at context, hermeneutics, author, audience, author's intent. And so when you hear Gehana, what does that mean? What is it? Well, the people at the time would have known exactly what it meant. It was a ravine in South Jerusalem, and it was a ravine that the people viewed as cursed for good reason. Because earlier, King Ahaz used it as a place for sacrifice to the fire god Moloch. And what they would actually do, and this, these are the Israelites, during one of the darkest times of them following pagan rituals, would take children and sacrifice them here in this ravine. Hinnon, H-I-N-N-O-N, I think it is, and they did the valley of it, and, and that's where child sacrifice would take place, and so then you have like a while later, another king takes over, and he actually sacrifices both of his own sons to set an example for the people. So just imagine for a moment, this is real life. This isn't fiction. This is documented in several different types of historical documents, not just in the Bible. Imagine for a moment the sounds of children burning alive. Imagine for a moment the smell, the desolation, the depravity, the heat. 
what the area around it would look like. And later, reform would come in and they would wipe out that practice. This is actually recorded in Second Chronicles. People that say the Bible's boring, like, I'm like, dude, y'all haven't read the Bible. Here we go, Second Chronicles 28.3, here's the proof. He burned sacrifices in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, so that's Gehenna, Gehenna, and sacrificed his children in the fire, engaging in the detestable practices of nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. So what would happen later when this was wiped out and this practice wasn't happening anymore is then it was a cursed land. No one wants to go there. The blood of innocent children had seeped into the ground. You're not going to live there. You're not going to grow anything there. You don't want anything to do with that place. So they turned it into a trash heap. And that's where you would go take your trash. That's where you would go get rid of your fecal matter. That's where you would go get rid of all of those things. And when it stacked too high, you would light it on fire. And, and if you were a criminal or you didn't have any family and you died, somebody, no one's going to pay for those burial rites. So what do you do? You drag the body down to Gehenna. You throw them onto the trash dump as it's lit on fire. And that was happening in Jesus' time. So when he uses that 12 times to reference what hell was going to be like as a place of hopelessness, it's a place of darkness, it's a place of desolation where no one wanted to be around it. Hell is no joke. And you're going to see this reoccurring theme throughout our message today, throughout our time today, that if we believe in the Bible and that we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, then we have no choice but to believe that hell is a real place. And if we think that hell is a real place, then we don't have time to argue amongst ourselves and have friendly fire. We've got souls to win. But yet, how many churches have you heard about that will spend meetings and meetings and splits and splits over what color carpet to have in the auditorium. This is horizontal energy. Church, we've got work to do. We've got work to do. We don't have time to grumble amongst ourselves. One of the things that God hates is those who sow discord amongst the brethren. Why? We've got work to do. We don't have time for friendly fire. We've got a world to win. So I want to take a look at four different false doctrines floating around various church circles that I want you to be aware of. So some people, this is, uh, there's some false prophets who are going around proclaiming this. It's not scriptural. There are some sects of Christianity that proclaims something a little bit different. And I want us to take a look at these four false doctrines because I want to equip you. I don't think that the church's job, nor does Jesus want, you to have the ostrich syndrome and just be like, hey, I believe heaven and hell are real. I don't know anything about it. I don't know what Bible verses talk about it. I'm just going to stick my head in the sand and, and hope that I'm right. We're talking about eternity here. So I want to equip you so that you know what you're getting into. You're basing your eternity on it. Don't base it on what I say. Four different false doctrines that you need to be aware of. The first one is universalism. We'll have them up on the screen. Write these down. Universalism. Universalism is this idea that God will save everyone in the end. That at the very end of it all, God is going to end up just saving everybody because he's a loving God. And there's actually really only two verses that people that, that base their eternity on universalism actually base this whole thing on two little verses taken completely out of context. I'll show you both of them. The first one is Paul writing to young Timothy, 1 Timothy 2.4. 
He's talking about God who wants all people saved, underline that word, all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. One little half sentence, and that's what we're going to base our eternity on. The other one is actually the words of Jesus. John 12, 32, he says, and when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw, underline all, all people to myself. Here's the problem with that is that it also contradicts then everything that we've been told in Scripture that what we do here on earth matters. And it also means you don't have to live a life of obedience. You don't have to give your life to the Lord. You don't have to submit yourself to His ways because at the very end of it all, you're going to go to heaven anyway. When the word all appears there, God does desire for all people to get to heaven. He does. But the word all right there obviously talks about all people of all races, all genders, all socioeconomic statuses, everyone with a past, everyone with a present. God will pursue all. And the other one is taken so far out of context, it's almost comical, but it's not, is that he's talking about when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. He's talking about when he's lifted up on the cross and everyone's at the bottom looking up at him at the cross, that at that moment, the opportunity is for all to be drawn because of what he was going to do on the cross. He was speaking prophetically, yet two little verses, and we get universalism. I wish universalism was true. I do, because I can do whatever I want. I wouldn't be here. I've been making a lot more money, doing a lot less work. I wouldn't have to tithe. Why would I? I don't have to go add value to people who will never add value to me. I don't have to listen to anything that God tells me to do. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. I don't have to do any of that stuff if universalism is true. But if it's not, oh, you're the biggest fool of them all. The second false doctrine is a second chance after death. It's shocking how many people think that after one dies, you'll then have a second opportunity to say yes to God. I just don't see it in Scripture. If you think that is true, fantastic. You study the Bible, you tell me. If you want to compare, you can. I usually don't argue doctrine with people because it's like sitting in a spiritual rocking chair. But I'll go with what Scripture shows me. You go with what you think that is, and whoever runs out of Bible verses first loses. <laughs> a second chance after death. It's a cop-out, really. There's one linchpin to this whole thing, and it's the Word of Jesus. There's lots of Scripture, but there's one thing that Jesus specifically talked about that's recorded in Dr. Luke's Gospel, and I want you to hear it. And this shows me that the second chance doctrine is false doctrine. Luke 13, 22 through 28. Like, take a picture of that or write that down and go back and, and study this. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Underline that. Because many, I tell you, will try to enter and not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Verse 26. Then you will say, But we ate and drank with you 
And you taught in our streets, but he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom, but you yourselves are thrown out. That's a scary portion of Scripture because that means that even the very elect will be deceived. There's, there's an element there of, of being shocked, but Jesus is clearly saying that there is a moment where it is over, and that moment is when your heart stops beating. And at that moment, you can beg, you can plead, but it's over. Think about the story of Noah. Noah's telling everybody, it's going to rain, and you're all going to die. And at the time, they had never even seen rain. We have no evidence that actually rain had ever fallen from the sky at that point. Now, some parts of Scripture actually say that the earth flooded from the ground up. We don't know. But either way, it had never happened. And so you got this random dude, Noah, building this giant boat out of, you know, Lincoln Logs. And he's trying to, like, tell... <laughs> some of you have no idea what that is. And he's telling everybody it's going to rain. And he told them, and he told them, and he told them. And then the day came where it did. And Noah's not the one that shut the door of the ark. God shut the door. The second chance doctrine, I just don't see it in Scripture. Some things are worth like, well, maybe that's true, maybe that's not. This topic is not worth assuming. The third one, false doctrine, is annihilationism. Annihilationism or conditional morality. This is pretty prevalent in some circles. Basically what this means is, is that the only ones who will be resurrected and live forever are the righteous. If you're wicked, then you'll just be annihilated. That's where the word comes from. It'll be like you never existed. You just cease existing. So hell, hell isn't real. It's not for humans. You will not be punished. You'll just fade in, as Pink Floyd said, another brick in the wall. Like you never existed. The two most prominent religions that teach this is the Jehovah's Witness and even the Seventh-day Adventists teaching annihilationism. I don't see it in Scripture, and it contradicts way too many things that Jesus said. So when in doubt, what does the Bible say? The fourth and final false doctrine we're going to talk about is purgatory. Is purgatory. In the 16th century, the Catholic Church decided to adopt what is called the Council of Trent, this doctrine, 1st and 2nd Maccabees. You ever heard of the Apocrypha? And in 2 Maccabees chapter 12, I think, it talks about that confessed sins are forgiven. And unconfessed sins, you got to burn those off in purgatory. And that may take a month, may take a year, may take a decade, may take a millennia. No one knows. Conveniently, that part's left out. And once you've burned off those sins, then you can enter the kingdom of heaven. I just don't see it in Scripture. And while I'm at it, and I mean this with all due respect, even the idea of confession and the only way your sins are forgiven is if you tell a man about it, and that's the path of forgiveness, I just don't see it. 
That's why Jesus died on the cross, so we don't have to have prophets anymore. So we don't have to have the high priest enter the Holy of Holies anymore because now you have access to the Savior, and Jesus says your sins are forgiven. They're already paid for. The sins that you're going to commit next week are already paid for. I just don't see the doctrine of purgatory in Scripture. So now let's pivot. And let's talk about three things that we can learn from studying hell. We're approaching the runway now. Don't you wish this could go on longer? Just say yes. It's great for my self-esteem. One person said yes. Three things that we can learn from hell. And we'll hover on this for a little bit because I think this is important. I think this is important. The first one is this. We started off with this. Studying hell will show us how dependent we are on God. If you understand hell fully, then you will understand how dependent we are on God right now. The the scariest phrase in the Bible, since we're on this scary stories kick, is depart from me. Depart from me. Even the most evil people in the world that are in existence right now are still in the presence of God. They're still enjoying the goodness of God. Not to the level that his children are, but but they are. They can still experience hope and love, opportunity for forgiveness, even just the warmth from the sun and having a light outside is the goodness and the faithfulness of God every single day. And even people who were spitting on Jesus as he hung on the cross were still experiencing the goodness of God here on earth for now. If you don't think you're dependent on God, see how long you can go without the oxygen that he gives your body. Even the most evil people are are, are feeling the blessings of God. They're actually dependent on God, whether they realize it or not. The scariest part is depart from me. You see, hell, what makes hell so terrible is not what the place is like. What makes hell so terrible is God isn't there. What does it look like without God in your presence for eternity? There is no light. There is no hope. There is no healing. You are alone and you are hopeless. Studying hell makes us better understand how dependent we are on God. The second thing that we can learn from studying hell is the danger of free will. The danger of free will. In Romans 1 and 2, Paul talks extensively, go back and study it, about what happens to those who reject God. Here's the danger of free will. The fairest punishment that God can actually give a person is to let them continue living in eternity how they want to live their life here. If you reject God and you say, I want nothing to do with God, I don't want to be obedient to God, I don't want to follow what he says, I don't want to study God's word, I don't want a relationship with him, I don't want anything to do with God. At that point, the fairest thing for God to do would be like, okay, that's what you've chosen, then you'll continue that for eternity. You will have nothing to do with me, and I will be absent from your life from here on out. You know, in the Garden of Eden, when, when, when God created man, we, we, our souls will live forever. You will live forever. 
The destination is your choice. See, what's interesting about hell is this, is hell is actually you being in a jail cell. And you have the choice to lock the door or not, but once it's locked, it's locked, but the keys are in your own cell. That's what's interesting about it. People say, what kind of loving God can send people to hell? God doesn't send anybody to hell. You choose that. He did everything he could to keep you from it, even sending his son, Jesus, to die for it. The very final thing, number three, is I think studying hell shows us how much Jesus went through for us. This is the thing that I want you to walk away with the most. If it was one thing, when I was a school teacher, I used to say, if you're going to remember a single thing I've said today, remember this. If you're going to remember a single thing i said today, remember this. You've experienced what a separation of a relationship looks like here on earth, and it hurts. Some of you have experienced betrayal by a friend. Some of you have experienced a marriage ending in divorce. We've all experienced what it's like when there's a separation of a relationship when a loved one dies. Man, the last two years, there's been a lot of pain in this world. There's been a lot of pain. Jesus experienced on the cross the greatest separation of all time. This is what I want you to leave with. I think what Jesus was most concerned about was not the horrific death dying on the cross. And that was enough, trust me. But what I think he was worried the most about, begging and pleading, let this cup pass from me, is he knew that the full wrath of God was about to come down upon him. The wrath of God had been storing up for thousands of years as man, through animal sacrifices, had been just pushing the sin forward. It had never been redeemed. It had never been healed. It had just been pushing forward, waiting, 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 till Jesus shows up. And the full wrath of God for all the sins of mankind, past, present, and future, poured upon Jesus on that cross. And I think that is why he was so concerned about what was happening, what was going to happen, what he was there to do. Because his relationship with God was beginningless. And now on the cross, he's about to experience for the first time in his existence what it's like to be separated from God. And that's why he said this. You know this phrase. You know this verse. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I remember when I was younger reading that and thinking, what does that mean? He's saying, where are you, God? Because we are not together anymore. There is a separation. There is an absence. He's echoing Psalms. Psalm 22, King David wrote the same psalm, and Jesus is, is echoing this. It's an echo in Scripture. Listen to this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? Here's what we need to understand, is there on the cross, Jesus experienced hell. He experienced what it was like not having God. You and I have the luxury of never having to know what that existence is going to look like or does look like. We don't have to because Jesus did it. And I want this thought to echo in your mind. Are you ready? 
If you devalue yourself, then you have devalued what Jesus went to hell for. Because there's no doubt that Satan is talking to you and telling you that you are less than, telling you that you are a sum of all of your sins, telling you that you are the tail, not the head, telling you that Jesus is disappointed with you, wants nothing to do with you. You've messed up so much you are too broken to ever be fixed. There's no doubt that Satan is telling you these things. But when you devalue yourself, you devalue what Jesus experienced hell for. If you're like me, my problem often isn't devaluing myself. My problem is, if I could be just real honest for a moment, is sometimes I have the tendency to devalue other human beings and think, well, their decisions got them in this mess. What did they expect? Well, that person has so much baggage and has messed up so much, they get what they deserve. When you devalue other human beings, you devalue what Jesus did on the cross. So I want us to end with this thought. Who are you pursuing for God? Who are you pursuing for God? Because if we believe hell is real, we got work to do. You got neighbors, you got family members that if their hearts stop beating today, they will experience separation from God forever forever. We got work to do, church. I don't have time to fight amongst ourselves in churches. I don't have time to fight with other people at other churches. I don't have time to take a day off from ministry. This is the day that the Lord has made. And you don't have time to just go through days where you're not pursuing the people that are in your life, your children, your grandchildren, your co-workers, your neighbors, We've got work to do. And finally, if you've never given your life to the Lord, or you're not sure, or it's been a while, there's no better time than now. There's no better time than now. We get messages from people viewing online, a couple of them at least, every single month of people who send in and said, I watched the stream. I don't even live in Tennessee, but I just want to let you know I gave my life to the Lord today. So God can move in a variety of ways, but if you're in here, oh, you're here on purpose. You're here on purpose. Let's pray. Stay seated and let's just pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your living word, God. I thank you that you sent your son to die on the cross and experience hell so that we don't have to, God. I pray for each and every person within the sound of my voice that they will have an encounter with you. They will have an encounter with you. Lord, I pray for the people in my life. You know who they are. I don't know you right now. Some weeks go by and I forget about it. Make it anguish me, God, the way that it anguishes you. Make it bother me the way it bothers you. Remind me that you never stop pursuing imperfect, broken people, and nor should I. We really enjoyed spending some time with you today. If this message impacted you in any way, let us know. We want to hear your story. You can contact us at centerpointtn.com. We can't wait to hear from you.